0: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. My guest today is Dr. Joy Boilamwini. She's a skateboarder, a pole vaulter, a pitch person for a cosmetics line, the star of an Emmy-nominated documentary, and a poet of code. And she is one of the foremost computer scientists and researchers in the world. She has testified before Congress, spoken with the president at the White House, and advised business leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Her groundbreaking work in the field of artificial intelligence led her to form an organization called the Algorithmic Justice League, with which she leads the crusade against the harms of AI. Dr. Joy has just published a book that tells her remarkable story and elucidates how she came to understand The shortcomings and dangers of AI, in particular, how AI facial recognition technology discriminates against and marginalizes people of color. The book is a clarion call to world leaders, tech entrepreneurs, and scholars to address the deficits in AI and to regulate this powerful technology so that it can't be deployed unfairly and illegally. The book is called Unmasking AI. My mission to protect what is human in a world of machines. I spoke with Dr. Joy Wallamwini earlier this month. Because our conversation was pre-recorded, we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. Dr. Joy, join me on Zoom from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Joy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me, and what an intro. I'll have to share that with others.
0: <laughs> well, you're welcome to. I was just captivated by this book by your work, by the story of how your career has evolved and, uh, and, and been shaped. Um, it's just terrific. So Unmasking AI, in the title Unmasking is a very d- uh, direct reference. Describe what you found early in your research when you started exploring facial recognition.
1: Yeah, so when I was a graduate student at the MIT Media Lab, One of the first courses I took encouraged students to read science fiction and come up with something creative. So I wanted to create a mirror that would uh, follow my face uh, with a camera and then put on a kind of filter through the mirror. And to do this, I downloaded face tracking software, but the software didn't really detect my dark skin face until I literally put on a white mask (laughs) over my face and the white mask was almost immediately detected. And so it was really that experience that galvanized me to ask more questions about how are we training machines to see what does it mean if these types of systems that aren't just used for facial recognition but are infiltrating so many other areas of our lives might have some bias so it was a mystery it was a question and that's what led to the research and the algorithmic justice league
0: and you write that the white mask demonstration is just an entry point to larger conversations about bias in artificial intelligence uh, and those who can be harmed by these systems so give us some examples of how harm can come to people because of these inherent biases
1: Yes, think of an ism and it's likely being encoded in some type of AI system. So let's look at hiring. Amazon actually had to scrap an internal hiring tool because it was biased against women. If it had a women's college listed, right, that that would count against you. Other researchers looked at hiring tools where you might get a bonus if your name was Jared or you played lacrosse because of the prior references these systems uh, were trained on. So as pattern recognition systems, they're looking at the decisions of uh, past gatekeepers and what the signals they pick up on aren't always, are you qualified for the job, but do you match other people who have been selected uh, for the job? So that's one example. Another example, we might think of uh, ageism. So you have healthcare systems that are adopting AI for the reasons a lot of people adopt AI. Let's make things more efficient. And you'll see that uh, elderly people are actually having their care shortened, right? Even though their insurance normally would cover longer care because a predictive system is saying that this person's care is complete when it's not. And it ends up costing the health systems even more because there are uh, complications. So those are just a few examples. Yeah,
0: this whole thing is so complicated and so nuanced. Um, You you even say that the the term facial recognition technologies uh, is kind of a catch-all phrase, which you've decided to adopt. Um, But there are many types of face-related tasks that machines can perform. You write about that. Give us some idea of, of what those kinds of types of tasks are.
1: Yes. Yeah, so when I think about facial recognition technologies with the emphasis on the plural, it's because these systems are trained to answer different types of questions. So one basic question is, in this image or in this video, is there a face? So that is face detection. Now you need to do face detection to do the rest of it, right? My own example that got me started with this research was when I was trying to have my face detected in the mirror and it didn't detect it. So that's one type. Another type, let's say you do detect the face, is asking what kind of face is this? So you might have systems that are doing gender classification, guessing the gender of the face as you might figure, uh, age estimation, guessing the age, sometimes it's an age range, you know? And you might have other systems that have been trained to try to guess somebody's uh, ethnicity or race. And it's really important to remember that just because these systems have been trained (laughs) to accomplish a specific task doesn't mean they're so good at it. And then we get to what researchers would consider facial recognition, which is whose identity? right? Who's the identity behind this face? And this comes in two flavors. One you might be really familiar with if you have a phone and you're unlocking the phone with your face. This they call one-to-one matching or face verification. So that's a type of facial recognition. Another type is one-to-many. So think of this when you see cops using facial recognition. This is usually the ones you'll see in Hollywood, right? So Mission Impossible, somehow you're able to get the face through many people in the crowd. That is one to many. So that's facial uh, identification. So there we've talked about facial detection. Is there a face? We've talked about gender classification or age estimation, what kind of face, right? Then we've talked about unlocking your phone one-to-one matching, which is facial verification, and then trying to find somebody in a crowd, (laughs) one-to-many facial identification. So they all sound similar. This is why I use that overall blanketing term of facial recognition technologies.
0: And when it comes to the, the facial recognition technologies that we are pretty familiar with in our daily lives, you give the example of the phone. Um, if I took your phone and looked at it, it wouldn't open it, but it would open it for you. But is there a problem because you are a person of color uh, with that system to, to open your phone or a particular piece of software on your phone or on your computer? Do, do, do the problems, uh, you know, evolve down into to that level?
1: I have seen that. And so I think it's important to think about technical problems and socio-technical problems. So let's just talk about the technical problem. Did it work or not? When I actually got the first um, iPhone with Face ID, my mom could open my my phone, Mm. (laughs) right? You know, and this is actually a known problem Uh, and other people would show their kids opening their phones and so forth across race lines. Uh, In China, you had people, uh, I remember one story of two women who weren't related and they were able to open each other's phone. And I wanna say Apple at the time was saying uh, there's a, it was something like it should work in one in 100 million. But when you're talking about billions of people, (laughs) right? You know, it doesn't mean it's always going to work. So I actually saw those sorts of issues, not just being for one uh, particular group when it came to that one-to-one matching that you could see with uh, facial uh, verification. For me, I think about facial verification when it goes beyond the phone. So let's say you're using facial verification to access uh, benefits. So you've had the IRS and veterans uh, services actually adopt a third-party vendor to scan people's faces. And here are some of the issues go into access and how fast your internet connection is so you had veterans you know in Colorado reporting that they weren't able to access um, their benefits like white men in their 70s and uh, this was involving uh, some of these uh, facial uh, technologies so it definitely has racial dimensions. It has age dimensions. It has gender dimensions, but no one is immune. That's what we see time and time again.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. The book is called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. So, Dr. Joy, I think you, co- you coined the phrase the coded gaze. What do you mean by that?
1: Yes, so I had come across the term, the male gaze, and I had come across the term, the white gaze. And so this is a cousin concept. And the idea behind the coded gaze is to say, who has the power to decide what the priorities are? whose prejudices, because they have the power to decide, get embedded into technologies, even if it's not uh, intentionally. And so that's the whole concept of the coded gaze, that our human fingerprints, and particularly the fingerprints of those who have power to shape the technology, shapes its limitations.
0: And uh, so much of your book is about how the data sets are put together for this facial recognition technology and AI in general, and you make the point, and it's such a good one, that this coded gaze doesn't have to be explicit to, to still be oppressive. Uh, it can it can do the job of oppression, as you write, um, w- even if it's not, you know, absolutely tr- purposefully trying to do that. Um, and you you, you make a, an example of people with disabilities Um uh, there was a, a Center for Democracy and Technology study that examined uh, proctoring tools mm. um, explain uh, how that worked and how that um, how, how the coded gaze in that instance was uh, showing bias towards the disabled community
1: oh that's such a great question so oftentimes when Uh, AI systems are being used to survey or track or proctor in this case, they are looking for deviations from the norm. And that is almost likely the definition that someone with a disability is going to have depending on who decides the norm. So for example, let's say um, a student has Crohn's and because they have Crohn's disease, they have to get up and go to the bathroom more often. It doesn't mean that the student is cheating, but without the context, what the proctoring software is seeing that the student is no longer there, then they're there. They're no longer there, then they're there, right? So one with Tourette's, they might have different ways of moving. It doesn't mean that they are cheating. And so what's happening is an algorithmic norm is being set that doesn't account for human uh, variability and variety. And it criminalizes it. Right. Or it makes it other or suspect.
0: And you talk about those people who have been criminalized or uh, made uh, people of suspicion uh, as the X coded And I love that notion (laughs) that there's code and then there's X code. Um, But there there are large groups of people who are X coded in this system because of the way these systems are built.
1: Absolutely. And I like to keep in mind that. Yes, marginalized communities are at higher risk of being X-coded, but no one is immune uh, from being uh, X-coded. I even think about uh, data breaches that happen uh, with the government. And so I was really thinking through this term when I learned about stories like Portia Woodruff. She was arrested eight months pregnant for carjacking she didn't commit because of AI-powered facial recognition misidentification. And she reported having contractions while in the holding cell. And when she was finally released, she had to be uh, rushed to the hospital. So here, not only was she ex coded but so was her unborn uh, child um, at the time as well.
0: Incredible. Dr. Joy Bolomwini, her new book is called Unmasking AI, My Mission to protect what is human in a world of machines. We'll have more with Dr. Joy on the other side of a quick break. Our show was recorded earlier, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments today. I'm Tom Hall. You're listening to Midday. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're listening to a conversation I had earlier this month with the award-winning computer scientist and social justice activist, Dr. Joy Bolamwini. She is the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, a nonprofit advocacy organization that uses art and research to make technology more equitable and accountable. Her new book is called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a world of machines. So um, Dr. Jory, you define yourself as a poet of code. What does that mean?
1: Well, I am the daughter of an artist and a scientist. So I have literally seen those two worlds in companionship and also figuratively through my work. So as a poet of code, what I attempt to do is use the arts, use words to humanize technology and to also bring people into the experiences that others who might not look like them have with the same technologies they use and might take for granted. And I really do think that's part of the poet's call to ask us to pause and reconsider what we think we already know and reconsider how we view the world. And so that's what I attempt to do when I put on my Poet of Code hat.
0: You are not bashful about putting that Poet of Code hat on when you're in an academic environment or a business environment, environments that aren't used to uh, the poet dimension, the poetry dimension of research they're interested in papers and publications that are you know uh, that sort of adhere to a certain tradition and uh, their own code of how these things are usually written and communicated at conferences and stuff you wrote a, a piece uh, that you a poem that that is accompanied by uh, slides and visual images called ai ain't i a woman and you actually presented this at you know, these these highfalutin academic and business conferences. How did people react? They're not used to hearing that kind of presentation of this kind of research.
1: Yes, I am not bashful now, but I was very hesitant to share my poetry at first, especially as somebody who is a computer scientist. And as a young researcher, I was concerned that the poetry would be viewed in such a subjective way that it could undermine the credibility of my research. So I had a concern and I thought maybe I should just stick to showing the performance metrics of the AI systems that I'm uh, auditing. But I realized that to touch more people outside of the academic world, and indeed, yes, people in the business world and people in policy-making circles that everyone relates to storytelling. And the poems essentially are stories. And I've been pleasantly surprised with how these stories through the poetry have been uh, received. So having defense ministers in the EU uh, watch AI anti-woman ahead of conversations on lethal autonomous weapons humanizes what we're talking about. So it becomes more than uh, just statistics. When I say something like, can machines uh, ever see my queens as I view them? Can machines ever see our grandmothers as we knew them? It's an invitation back to our humanity. And again, regardless of what sector you are in, that storytelling I have seen time and time again, whether it's the halls of Congress, you know, or on uh, a Afro-punk stage, (laughs) right, it resonates.
0: (laughs) Because that's what's so cool about it. I mean, it 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 works in both environments or in all environments. Um, I mean, this is this is research, academic, you know, computer science research that's important, that's groundbreaking, that's precedent-shattering, and it's also um, the subject of of art exhibitions at the Barbican in the UK <laughs> and places. I mean, it's really it's incredible that it that it uh, it holds up in both kinds of venues. Um, and I, I wonder, are there are there copycats in the computer science realm? Uh, others who are who are taking a cue from you and saying, "Well, if Dr. Joy can do it, maybe I can do it." Are Are there people broadening the way <laughs> they, you know, they present research at conferences and that kind of stuff?
1: I do think it has had an influence, and I would say. The best thing for me about being an artist and also doing the kind of research I do is when it inspires other people, not necessarily to copy verbatim what I've done, but to tap into their own creativity or the bits and pieces of themselves they thought they had to suppress. Right. So I remember uh, when. Uh, data, the founder of a data rights kind of group, Uh, they play guitar and so forth. And so they and their band put together a song that was getting into data rights and so forth. And they shared that it had been inspired by seeing some of the work that uh, I do. And I've also seen other organizations uh, spending more time on the art side of what they're uh, doing as it comes to uh, tech justice work. So for me, that is Uh, Exactly what I want to see and to encourage, to say, let your voice be heard however your voice is.
0: Dr. Joy Boilamwini, her new book is called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. I'm Tom Hall. You're listening to Midday. Dr. Joy and I had this conversation earlier this month, so we can't take calls or online comments today. So I want to ask about um, some of the, the other um, revelations that you uh, came upon in this research. And one of the things that was really um, thought-provoking to me is the notion of what cameras can do. Um, and you say that cameras appear to be neutral. You know, you take a picture of something, you say, well, that's a pretty, you know, very objective, uh, not at all subjective thing. Um, but in fact, you say history reveals another story. There's a standard uh, for cameras called the Shirley card. What's that?
1: Uh yes. So cameras have to be uh, calibrated. So let's first talk before we get to the age of digital. Right. Let's talk about film. Uh, camera. So if you were going to uh, take a photo and you captured an image on film, in order to make that final uh, image as a photograph, you would have to get the right combination of chemicals to expose that image correctly. And so in order to figure out what's the right chemical combination, Clever people decided, okay, we should have a standard, right? We should have an image that we have a sense of what it should look like. And then we calibrate to fit that image. So that's when you're like, where's Shirley? This is when Shirley comes (laughs) in. And the Shirley card is actually uh, encompassing of many women who stood in as models, but Shirley was one of the early models and she was a white woman. And so her image was used to calibrate these camera, uh, the cam- the whole process in the first place. And because she was lighter skinned, right, the optimization ended up being for lighter skinned uh, individuals. But what we found out is that it can change. So you actually had uh, another uh, Kodak came out with a different way of doing uh, the camera technology uh, where they had complaints from furniture companies and chocolate companies. So the chocolate companies were saying the way it's currently exposed, we can't see the difference between the dark chocolates and the milk chocolates. (laughs) And then darker skinned people got a windfall. And then part of the marketing was like, it's so good it can shoot a black horse at night, right, to talk (laughs) about the ways in which they had um, enhanced it. And so it wasn't necessarily a limitation of uh, the technology outright. Um, but a limitation of the imagination of who is to be centered and what types of images are to be created. And so because you have that initial uh, bias towards lighter skin, when you then get the defaults for uh, even the digital cameras, it's inheriting uh, those defaults. I will say after some of my research came out, uh, Gender Shades research Uh, we had various uh, companies uh, people from those companies uh, taking that as inspiration to actually improve their camera technology to better capture a wider range of uh, skin tones and so i keep those sorts of emails and messages close to me because it shows me just how far uh, the research can travel
0: yeah, and you make the absolutely uh, true point that having the ability to define classification systems is in itself a power. So the people who are putting together the data sets that uh, create the Shirley's of the world uh, and and calibrate cameras accordingly uh, are incredibly influential and powerful when it comes to how these systems are going to work. Um, you you came up with a new way. Of putting together uh, a data set, you, you you looked at a lot of photographs of people, um, and it was interesting to see how you uh, went about finding those photographs because it brought up all sorts of interest uh, or, or interesting uh, dilemmas about privacy uh, about uh, access, um, but you ended up using uh, a lot of public figures, uh, people who were politicians in various parliaments and, and legislatures uh, around the world. Why, why did you choose them? Uh, what what problems did that uh, choice help you solve?
1: Got it. That's such a great question because when we're looking at who has the power to decide, there's the question about who's deciding what faces get included in certain data sets that are then used to train different AI systems or used to evaluate those AI systems. And before I went about creating my own data set, because that takes time and energy, I wanted to see if the existing data sets uh, could uh, do the work for me so I could focus on another uh, piece of it. And what I found was that many existing data sets were overwhelmingly light skinned individuals and overwhelmingly uh, men. So I call these pale male data sets. Hmm. Right. And as I found more of these pale male data sets, I realized I wouldn't be able to even answer my uh, research questions. So, for example, one data set that I found, I want to say less than five percent of the people within that data set were women of color. So think about it, let's say you got everybody else right. You know, it would look like it's a high performing system, even if you failed on an entire group because there was a lack of representation in the first place. So my whole goal was, okay, what if we made the test a little more inclusive and a little bit harder, but closer to what the rest of the world looks like? So this is what led me to the UN Women's website, because I wanted to see if I could create a better balanced data set in terms of gender representation, but also in terms of skin type representation. So I couldn't choose um, just any uh, government (laughs) because there continue to be uh, huge uh, skews, right? Patriarchy is real.
0: Yeah, it really is. You found that uh, the world is being run by a lot of white men, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Right. And you see that in the data set. So when I went to the UN women's website, I was looking for a ranking of countries in the world by their representation of women uh, in parliament. And at the time, Rwanda was number one (laughs) leading in the world of their representation of women. And uh, you also had a few other African nations there and some Nordic nations as well, which was helpful for me because I was looking for people on opposite ends of the skin type spectrum. So that allowed me to create a much more balanced data set to evaluate uh, AI systems that were attempting to guess gender and so forth. So it was a bit of a a long winding road to get there because I had hoped I could use something that was off the shelf. But using what was off the shelf was clearly not uh, taking us where we'd like to be.
0: And you got to where you wanted to be uh, all sorts of different ways. Um, you talk with great affection uh, about your friend and colleague, Dr. Timit Gebru, uh who I've had the great honor of uh, interviewing on this show and the work that she did with deep learning and computer Vision And you all have become uh, good friends over the years working on these issues. Um, and you also talk about Kimberly Crenshaw and her work uh, with intersectionality. Um, critical race theory is, you know, very much in the news these days. Um, how did how did a scholar like Kim, Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, who's a legal scholar, uh, help you um, in your research on A.I.?
1: So I came to her work a bit late, right? I came to her work where I think more people would come to her work until recent times, which was in grad school. And in grad school, I was drawn to her work because she was doing not just any type of law, but anti-discrimination law. And what her work showed was we had a problem with the legal system when it came to anti-discrimination law. And this problem was... If you were facing discrimination based on two identities, you were not necessarily covered by the existing protections. So for example, uh, let's say you were an Asian woman and this was one of the cases she explored. Let's say you're an Asian woman and you say you're being uh, discriminated against in the workplace, but your workplace can say, we don't discriminate against Asians. Here are all the Asians we've hired and they show they have Asian men Um, hired, right? And then they can also say, we don't discriminate against women. Here are all the women we've hired, and they'll show they have hired white women. So with that single axis analysis, you were missing the intersection, and hence this notion of intersectionality. And so it actually was important to go beyond the single axis and say, okay, not or, Is it gender or race, but gender and race? So I took this concept and said, oh, we should be looking at our data sets like this, but also the performance of different AI systems that we test. And so as I started to test AI systems, I went beyond just saying, how well does it work on an overall data set? Because really, it depends on the composition of the data set. And then we could break it down and disaggregate. Okay, so let's look by skin type you know, which maps to race, let's look by gender, but also, and this was a very important contribution of this research building on the anti-discrimination scholarship of Kimberly Crenshaw, which was let's look at this intersectionally. And when we did that, oh my goodness, the gaps were larger than I had anticipated or imagined, you know, in one case you might have near perfect performance uh, on lighter skin males. And that same system uh, might um, have error rates of up to 47% for uh, women with the, on the darkest end of the skin type spectrum, same system. So it turned out, you know, that disaggregation and that intersectional analysis gave us a different view of the performance.
0: Dr. Joy Wallamwini. She is the author of Unmasking AI, my mission to protect what is human in a world of machines. Our show was pre-recorded today, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments. We'll have more with Dr. Joy on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Joy Bolanwini. She's an award-winning computer scientist, a Rhodes scholar, and a Fulbright fellow. Dr. Joy holds graduate degrees from Oxford University and MIT and a bachelor's from the Georgia Institute of Technology. She advises governments and businesses around the world about how to prevent harm in artificial intelligence. As a young graduate student at MIT, Dr. Joy conducted groundbreaking research that revealed facial recognition technology did not recognize faces of color. Combining her research with art, she wrote what she calls a spoken word visual audit to share her research with other academics and tech leaders, government officials, and the general public. It's called AI, Ain't I a Woman? And it shows how facial recognition technology Fails on the faces of iconic women like Serena Williams and Oprah Winfrey and Michelle Obama. And it's not just a groundbreaking piece of research, it's also been featured in art exhibitions at prestigious venues like Ars Electronica in Austria and the Barbican Center in the U.K. Today on Midday, we're talking with Dr. Joy about her new book, Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in the World of Machines. We recorded our conversation earlier, so we can't take any calls or online comments. So, Dr. Joy, there's a big controversy about things like chat GPT and the appropriation of uh, the material and the work of various artists. We have um, writers and comedians like Sarah Silverman, uh, Aaron Sorkin, others uh, taking uh, some of these uh, AI firms to court to say, you can't insert uh, my work, my writing into the chat GPT writing software to come up with uh, you know formulas to, to make uh, various written pieces sound like Sarah Silverman, et cetera. Um, and you were very conscious of this in the facial recognition realm as well, because uh, you you did worry about privacy. People uh, oftentimes their images are used by some of these big tech companies, uh, even without their knowing, or or with only a you know a veiled uh, oblique reference to, to how it might might be used. Talk about your um, your your solutions to the problem of privacy uh, and the rights. for uh, scientists like yourself to use images of people?
1: Yes. So I think there are a number of things to explore here. There is privacy. uh, There is consent. And I think it might be helpful to think about it from the standpoint of biometric rights and creative rights because there's an intersection there. So let's start as you mentioned with ChatGPT and um, the ways in which many large language models like the ones that power ChatGPT uh, have been made by scraping large data sets of text on the internet. And when you're scraping large data sets of text on the internet, you're gonna scrape up a lot of things including copyrighted text if you are not careful. And so, part of what the pushback has been, not just on chat a GPT, uh, which is more focused on text, right? But also things like uh, stability AI, which could produce a stable diffusion, being uh, sued by Getty Images, you know, because some of the images that were being outputted by that system would show what looked like a Getty watermark. So I think there is a conversation to be had about taking copyrighted uh, work for which there is already uh, legal uh, protection. And I do think when you're thinking about creative rights, there should be consent, there should be compensation, there should be control, and there should be credit, which right now we're not seeing uh, much of any, right? So consent to even have your data in the first place, and that has to be at the very beginning of the process. What we're seeing some companies say is, oh, you can opt out now, right? But this is after the data has been taken and the products have been created, which one puts a lot of extra work on the artists (laughs) to try to figure out where um, that is, but also doesn't uh, compensate them for their contribution to prior uh, models. Sure. that goes to that second part with uh, compensation and also control, right? I think it's different people are going to look at AI in various ways. So I, you can't just assume this artist is okay with it so I can take some other artists, right? And at the same time, just because some other artist isn't okay with it, there might be someone like Grimes who wants to explore it. Uh, but the big thing is they have agency And I do think there should be credit when we're talking about these AI breakthroughs and the data sets that were uh, created. Data provenance is important because it lets us know what contributed uh, to what has been uh, created instead of living in what is very much the mystery meat (laughs) kind (laughs) of uh, AI models we see um, floating around. So that's a different type of set of questions that I look at when I'm thinking of creative rights, Uh, but it's still linked to the same types of questions I ask when I'm thinking about biometric rights. So consent, when it comes to biometrics, this are scans of your faces. So think of your face print, the biometrics people are probably most familiar with are fingerprints, but now you also have, think of your voice. So now because of generative AI systems, Your likeness, the way you sound and the way you look can be regenerated. Tom Hanks found this out when a deep fake, you know, synthetic media portrayal of him was floating around. I think promoting some kind of dental service he had nothing uh, to do with. And this is, you know, another example that no one is immune um, from these types of AI harms. Further still, you'll have people um, being scammed because the voices of their loved ones are used by scammers to do these hoax where it'll sound like a loved one is saying, help me, help me. People are robbing me or something terrible is happening. They get you into a heightened situation. You end up doing things you probably wouldn't have done um, otherwise. And so these types of algorithms of uh, exploitation, I don't think it is um, fair to say the individual has to fight back. I really do think that is where uh, legislation and regulation uh, has to come into play so that there are real consequences and penalties, you know, for these uh, sorts of actions. The other thing with biometric rights, when it comes to consent, is what you mentioned a bit earlier, uh, which I would kind of call manufactured consent. So I see this, for example, with airports. You might go to the airport, you're asked to step up and have your face scan, you comply because you want to fly, you may or may not even know you had the option uh, to opt out, even though the whole system is supposed to be opt-in. And you're also under stress, you just paid how much money, you got everybody behind you, Yeah, there's social pressure, economic pressure, and then your flight's about to leave, time pressure. These are not the conditions for informed consent. I would argue they are rather the conditions for more of a coercive type of consent. So I think it's also important that consent isn't um, misused, right, that we're looking at the context of consent and people have a real choice that if you're a U.S. citizen, you have the right to refusal, right, when it comes to biometric scans and so forth.
0: You know, I'm not sure I was even aware of that uh so if you go to the airport and they want to do a biometric scan on you you can say i don't want to do this and so they would just have to check you out some other way they'd wave the wand on you or something like that i I don't think i ever even knew that
1: so that this is before they get to scanning your whole body this is right when you're at the checkpoint and they're looking at your passport right they might look at your passport or your driver's license and then they look at your face Mm -hmm. that checkpoint you have the right to opt out most people don't even know
0: yeah i certainly didn't that's really fascinating Joy Bwelomwini, her book is called Unmasking AI My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Our conversation was pre recorded, so we can't take any online calls or comments today. Um, and you mentioned uh, in the book two people, uh, Adam Harvey and Jules Laplace, who created a website, uh, exposing.ai, so people can actually see if their faces are included. Uh, in these open-source face databases, so there are ways of figuring out whether or not you have been included. Um, you came up with a campaign called "Selfies for Inclusion," uh, where people are, I guess, taking their own pictures and and making a you know a purposeful decision to participate in a in a data set. Um, and certainly, you know, when it comes to consent, that uh, that problem is solved immediately. Yeah, uh, did, has that been? been been picked up by a lot of folks? Are a lot of folks eager and willing to do it?
1: It's just interesting because I write about it in the book how when I initially was doing this research in 2016 as a grad student, I had made a call for selfies uh, for inclusion, but I was also conflicted because it was a question of inclusion into what? Do I want to be included into uh, facial recognition systems that could be used to target me? And so this is where you go beyond questions of how accurate is a system to how it's being used. And as my understanding of the risk of these technologies continued, when I had a chance to work with Olay and they said, oh, that selfies for inclusion thing you wanted to do, let's do it now. I actually pushed back and I said, you know what? Instead of focusing on the technical aspect, what if we focus more on the social aspect of who gets included in deciding what technologies we make in the first place. So the call for action wasn't to take a selfie, but was to uh, send a girl uh, to code camp. And that was my own evolution because as someone trained in computer science, my first thought is the tech, okay, the data ver- the data sets aren't diverse, we have these SKUs, let's collect more data and uh, shore up those SKUs. That was my first approach and then moving from a technical analysis to more of a socio-technical analysis what happens if we have accurate facial recognition technologies in the hands of an authoritarian government right what happens to our privacy so it wasn't so my call for the encoding movement as i was calling it then then moved to algorithmic justice which goes beyond technical questions <laughs>
0: Yeah and uh, and by the way shout out to Olay uh as you mentioned you've worked with them um they agreed to let you do an audit of a thing that they have called a skin advisor tool and the deal right from the very start was if you found flaws with it they would either bag it completely or change it and and improve it so uh they did that you know before you even found anything one way or the other so good for them um in our last couple of minutes I do want to ask you
1: and I oh, just really quickly I want to also commend them for Agreeing to a consented data promise, which I think many other companies can learn from, to say there is another way to build consumer AI products. To your earlier question about consent,
0: yeah. Um, so it, as we finish up, what needs to be done, and and is this a governmental uh, policy issue? Is there any other entity other than uh, the the international uh, community and and individual governments that can regulate AI and 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 fix what's broke
1: so at the time we're recording this this is the week where Um, the U.S. government, the Biden-Harris administration signed an executive order on AI, which is quite comprehensive across many government agencies. And that is the type of work that will be uh, required of full court press because AI touches so many uh, dimensions of our lives. And yes, it needs to be at the federal level, but also at the international level. We're seeing uh, some movement with this with the U.N. and their recently appointed uh, AI advisor regroup and also this week so much happening in ai this particular week we're recording there was the uk uh, ai safety uh, summit, summit uh, yeah. as well right so i do think we're starting to take steps towards uh federal you know regulations and legislation as well as global ones
0: dr joy bolamwini her book is called unmasking ai my mission to protect what is human in a world of machines Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed your book and have had a blast talking to you about it. Thank you. And that's it for us today. Thanks for subscribing to the Midday Podcast and for checking out our episodes that you might have missed on the WIPR app. And thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great day.